So, Nicholas Bornholz of CapitalLink, I would like to welcome you to this very interesting uh, session on U.S. Uh, shipbuilding. U.S. shipbuilding is one of the main activities of the overall maritime cluster of the overall uh, maritime sector in the U.S. And we are privileged to have with us uh, great sector participants at top level who will share their insight. And with and I'd like to thank uh, Marcia, Patrick, and James, and of course. Our moderator, uh, Tony Salgado, uh, partner of Blank Rome, who is going to moderate the discussion and introduce our panelists. Thank you to all, and uh, we look forward to a great panel. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas, for that introduction. Um, good afternoon, everyone. We've, uh, as Nicholas said, we've assembled a great panel for you on U.S. shipbuilding. It's very representative of the types of shipyards we have in the United States. <clears throat> the panelists are Marsha Blount of Blount Boats. Marsha has been the president and chief financial officer of Blount Boats since 2007. Patrick Kelly of Fraser Industries, who's been the chief executive officer of Fraser Industries since last year. Fraser Industries is the parent company of Fraser Shipyards, Lake Assault Boats, and Northern Engineering. And Jim Miller of Philly Shipyard, who was appointed as senior advisor to Philly Shipyard in April of 2020. Jim was previously the Chief Executive Officer of Philly Shipyard from 2008 to 2011 and the Chairman of the Board of Philly Shipyard from 2011 to 2014 and then again from 2016 to 2020. Um, as I, before I turn to the panel, I want to give just a few words about Blank Rome's maritime practice. It's a full-service law firm uh, with a, a large and, and comprehensive maritime practice. We're probably the largest in the United States. We provide advice regarding transactional litigation, regulatory and legislative matters. I myself typically represent clients, including shipyards in ship finance, construction, chartering and other transactional matters and Jones Act citizenship issues. I particularly focus on developing Jones Act compliant structures for the construction and operation of Jones Act vessels in all trade lanes. So with that, Marsha, if you'll kick us off. Okay, could I have my aerial photo? I should add that what we're going to do, the panelists are going to go through and give some background on their shipyards. With, That's with not my aerial photo. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Blount Boats uh, is a full service shipyard specializing in the construction of steel and aluminum vessels up to 200 feet. Uh, the shipyard is located on six acres in Warren, Rhode Island on Narragansett Bay. We are between the town beach and the town wastewater treatment plant. If we could go to the next slide, we have our recent deliveries. So it's not quite in order, but what we're, yes, let's go to breaker two. <laughs> okay. Okay, breaker two is a 56 foot twin screw ice breaking tug built for the New York Power Authority. Uh, the breaker pulls an ice boom across the upper Niagara River, preventing ice flows from clogging the intakes to the hydroelectric power plant. Okay, next slide. This is the boat we just pulled out of the hull shop yesterday. Um, her name is a secret, so we, we rubbed it off. Um, it will be announced by the governor of Maryland. Um, it is for the state of Maryland. It's a 94-foot icebreaker buoy tender, and it's replacing a vessel built in 1942. Okay, next slide. Okay, this is the Atlantic Endeavor. This is our second crew transfer vessel. 
Uh, we delivered in 2021. Uh, she's 65 uh, feet. She's right whale compliant. She's a chart whale design. Uh, our first vessel, our first CTV was the Atlantic Pioneer, and she was the first US flagged crew transfer vessel built in the United States. Okay, the next slide. Okay, we most recently we have signed contracts with American Offshore Services for four 30 meter crew transfer vessels for delivery in 2023 and 2024. Okay, over to you, Patrick. Very good, thank you. Uh, if I could have my slides up as well, please, I'd appreciate it. And thank you, Capital Link, for the opportunity to join the panel. And thank you all for your time today and greetings from the western shores of Lake Superior in Superior, Wisconsin. Uh, as Tony mentioned, uh, Fraser Industries is made up of uh, three subsidiary groups. Uh, Fraser Shipyards is a new build and repair, uh, full service steel repair shop uh, uh, we do overhaul the new build construction as well. Uh, Lake Assault Boats uh, is a, a new aluminum workboat for leisure, commercial, municipal, state, and federal customers. And last but certainly not least, our Northern Engineering team is uh, directly involved in machining, renewal, and repair work, a full service machine shop supporting the marine industry. Uh, today, we are 350 employees during our overwinter work, but uh, have a full-time regimen of 250 full-time employees. It expands to 350 during the busy season for us, for us which is the overwinter period that we're in right now. I can have the next slide, please. I'll talk a little bit about uh, Fraser Shipyard and Lake Assault Boats, the, the two larger of our three groups. Uh, Fraser Shipyard is focused on steel hulled repair and construction, as I mentioned. Our primary customers are industrial ferry passenger and government vessels. Uh, by being strategically located in the Superior Duluth Harbor Complex, which is one of the top 20 harbors in North America, we benefit from the commercial traffic that comes through the harbor on a regular basis. Uh, we have two dry docks uh, pictured to the left here in the, in the, uh, in the forefront of the photograph uh, that enable full service Jones Act repairs to Great Lakers and any working boats uh, on the Great Lakes that we can service. We also undertake new build construction for ferry and passenger vessels. Uh, recent customers have included the U.S. Coast Guard, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and, and several other government entities. Uh, we are celebrating over 130 years of continuous operation at this location uh, in, in Superior, Wisconsin. Uh, we have over 60 acres, about 15 acres of which are currently utilized. You can see some of the open space here uh, in the photograph to the left. Uh, in the forefront are our two dry docks on the left, uh, holding just under a 700-foot Great Laker, which is in for winter repair. And on the right dry dock, you can see a 200-foot passenger ferry that was under construction and since launched and uh, out on the waters. Uh, this one was capable of carrying 30 vehicles and up to 200 passengers at a time. If I could have the next slide, please. Uh, Lake Assault Boats, I mentioned earlier, uh, focused on aluminum hull vessels. Uh, customers include uh, leisure, commercial, fire, police, and military. We are the proud suppliers of over 125 force protection patrol boats to the US Navy, 
uh, currently, which are uh, uh, being deployed globally around the world. Uh, we're also in the process of building a 79-foot casino boat in modules, uh, which are assembled on the customer site and for launch uh, there. Uh, we're celebrating our track record at Lake Assault Boats by delivering our 200th aluminum vessel this year, and quite a celebration for us. And Lake Assault has locations in Superior, Wisconsin, and Portsmouth, Virginia, that create delivery and post-delivery service options for our customers. If I could have my last slide, please. Fraser Industries and the subsidiaries uh, are, are well suited to meet customer needs. Uh, some customers opt for end-to-end -end service, meaning uh, looking for design work, fabrication, commissioning, post-delivery service, all of which we can provide. Uh, other customers will bring uh, customer supplied designs that we're happy to engage with, uh, bring best value package of options and get the boats built to a customer specification. Uh, we're excited about where the maritime market is going and excited about joining the panel today. And I'll, I'll hold there for now over to Jim. Good afternoon. Can we put the Philly slides up, please? Thank you. Go, go back to the beginning. There you go. Thank you. Uh, pleased to uh, be here today. Uh, Philly Shipyard, we're celebrating when our 25th year of, of business and operations. We are a full service shipyard that builds large repairs and of large ongoing commercial vessels. Uh, as you can see from the picture in the middle, all right, we have two dry docks. The one building dock is serviced by uh, two side cranes plus a 660 ton capacity gantry crane. We currently have approximately a thousand employees inside the gate and uh, very, very active. Next slide, please. To best describe the yard is our basically our three-legged stool strategy, which is comprised of commercial new builds, uh, which includes offshore wind vessels, container ships and tankers that have been previously delivered, uh, government new builds, the current uh, uh, NMSV uh, training ships, which I'll cover in the next slide, and other variants of that of, for the government uh, uh, industries. And last but not least is the maintenance and repair overhaul conversion market for uh, MSC and for the Navy and other government entities. Next slide, please. We currently have in backlog, okay, uh, four training ships for tote services and the ultimate uh, owner being uh, Marad, part of the Department of Transportation. We're very proud of these ships because they are basically being delivered to the various maritime academies that are training the mariners for the future. MSV-1 is currently in production and that will be going to SUNY Maritime. And you can see the various phases. We laid the kill in December so you can see the module starting to be assembled in a dry dock. You see a completed module uh, uh, before in a dry dock, and you see some various modules in various phases of production. Next slide. As I mentioned, 25 years, we're very, very proud. We're looking forward to the future, and thank you for your attention.
Okay, so um, the first question I have for the panel, and thank you for your presentations. I'm remiss for not saying that up front. That was very informative and helpful. Um, <clears throat> so I thought given COVID-19, I'd be remiss not to ask the question, how has it affected your shipyards? How have you dealt with it? Shipyards, as everybody knows, is, is a, uh, are, are labor intensive um, facilities. Uh, they can't really, uh, they, there aren't uh, robots building ships. Uh, so you have unique problems uh, trying to, to uh, construct vessels uh, during a, a pandemic type uh, situation that we've experienced the past couple of years. So I thought uh, I'd ask you, uh, how, has, how, have, how has that affected your shipyard and how have you dealt with it? Jim, I thought I'd start with you. Uh, yes, the COVID-19 and the subsequent vaccination mandate that was flowed on to us uh, in the fall of this year has had a pretty dramatic effect okay, in our production. It's affected our ability to attract people to come to the yard who are who don't care for the idea of getting a vaccination and being mandated. So uh, getting manpower and the proper skills and people to uh, ramp up and do the project has, has been challenging. Uh, in addition, okay, the uh, beginning in probably uh, late November and December with the advent of the Omicron virus uh, variant, we were basically experiencing a lot uh, many cases, okay, and with the quarantining and everything, that that has also caused a, uh, a lack of earned hours in production. So it's something that we face every day. We take an every, every reasonable and beyond reasonable steps with masks and uh, distancing and staggered work breaks and all kinds of things that we're doing. But uh, I'd say the primary challenge is to be able to basically to attract and maintain a, a skilled workforce. Marsha or Patrick? Yeah, well, I was, uh, the governor of Rhode Island did not uh, shut down manufacturing. Uh, so I'm not sure if uh, the other shipyards were um, shut down for a period of time. There were states where they did shut down manufacturing, but uh, Gina Ramondo did not do that. So. Um, so we kept going. It, everything was slowed down uh, in that the, the issue of distancing, you know, it's hard to do in a small engine room or a pilot house. Uh, and also, um, you know, in terms of uh, the technicians, the engine technicians coming or scheduling U.S. Coast Guard for inspections, they just weren't, weren't coming to the facility. So we didn't stop, but we slowed. And we did have some um, cases, uh, but not that much. And we, we simply could not go remote and we didn't. Frazier, very similar to both Marsha and Jim and descriptions, it's tested every aspect of what we do. Uh, everything from recruiting to boat building to interactions with uh, all parts of our value chain, uh, supply chain have been uh, under stress. And I don't think that's unusual for anybody else uh, in the conference who has seen this. Uh, uh, certainly though, we're, we benefit from uh, uh, segregated construction facilities. We're not on top of each other, except in unusual situations. So we absolutely like Marsha continued uh, working in full operations throughout the pandemic. 
Uh, obviously, though, challenged by personal situations. Uh, others, have, employees had uh, family members out. Maybe they weren't sick, but maybe others were that required special care situations. Uh, supply chain has been under stress. Uh, just getting outboard engines, as an example, uh, can be quite a challenge at times and require some pretty careful procurement planning to uh, order earlier and constantly check with suppliers about availability. So challenging on many different fronts, for sure. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> moving on, to, just because of time, um, uh, as uh, everybody knows um, on this panel, and uh, I think many of the uh, participants in the forum, uh, one of the uh, Jones Act's uh, main requirements is that vessels be built in the United States if they're going to participate in our coastwise trade. Uh, there are certain exceptions, but uh, that is the general rule. Um, oftentimes, uh, uh, people challenge the, uh, uh, the, this requirement as being unnecessary because vessels can be built less expensively abroad. But uh, there are a number of reasons why it's important that ships be built in the United States. Uh, and, and also, there's, it's important for people to understand why <clears throat> it does cost more to build a ship in the United States. So I asked the panelists their views as to what's behind the, the cost factors in building a ship in the United States. Um, Patrick, do you wanna start? Yep, thank you, yeah. It, it requires a number of considerations when you talk about costing, right? You have to look at the quality of the vessel being built relative to the comparison base and I would argue the boats being built in the United States are top quality boats uh, comparable to any vessels around the world. I think that's, uh, that's an important consideration looking at the cost benefit trade-off. Uh, I'll say this though as well, uh, Fraser Industries is a good example of this. So I'm really speaking about uh, my own company. We continually face the challenge of adopting new technologies. And we absolutely can build boats more efficiently today than we could two, three, five years ago. And the technologies coming into the market today will allow us in the coming years to be more efficient and get cost out of our manufacturing stack going forward. So we're excited about that journey. We're certainly on it. And I'm sure Marsha and Jim are as well. Uh, that's gonna help in our cost structures, but I think it's important to look at that quality trade-off when, when com uh, comparing costs for different yards, different parts of the world. Jim? Do you have thoughts on this? Yes, I do. First of all, it's obviously a very complex and controversial uh, topic, but I would say that it's very simple from our standpoint. It's about the volume and the size of the market is a key, key contributor to the cost structure. Uh, when we were building our project product tanker series, uh, we were at full production and taking full advantage of the capacity of our facility. We were delivering and building two point five ships a year. Our counterpart, okay, in Korea, one of the South, South Asian Korean yards, has the facility and the capability and the market, okay, to deliver and build 60 to 70 a year. So the Jones Act is a small market. The shipyards are all sized facility-wise, skill-wise to the size of the market. And the international market, okay, is obviously much, much larger than the U.S. Jones Act market. So when you can be able to have that kind of ships and series and volume, okay, and, and facilities and tech and, and more cranes, more technology, more, more heroes, 
All right, all those things contribute to a more efficient operation. Marcia, do you have any uh, other yeah. thoughts? Well, yeah, I, I do think, uh, and I agree with Jim, having a uh, work, having a substantial backlog uh, really helps get, get efficient. And for us, if we can build duplicates, we're usually, uh, you can see from the vessels, you saw that we're sort of a one-off specialty yard, very capable. But um, what we love to see is contracts for multiple vessels of you know, identicals, what we call identicals, where we can really get good at building. We can, you know, understand how to build it, and then we're thinking how, you know, how to cut the hours, be more efficient. So that's that's very important. I, I do think um, that, you know, on our side, on the crew transfer vessels, I, I do think the, the European vessels, you know, classed European vessels, DNV, BV, are, are very high quality. Um, and those are the designs that are coming over and they are required to be classed. Um, some are be, being required to be classed. And, uh, and along with, uh, I think we have a very robust US Coast Guard uh, with the passenger vessels uh, inspections. Um, so I do think that that has helped the quality of the U.S. vessels. Do you think that uh, U.S. regulations increase your costs? The health and safety, labor costs, those types, types of, of uh, cost items, do they impact you? Or do you think that's, that's really the, the yards in other countries have, particularly in Europe, have similar, um, similar. Uh, requirements to satisfy? Yes, I would say they have similar requirements. I would too. I, I, I'd struggle to point to health and safety issues as a reason that if there's a perception of higher cost, I think that's good business. I, I think we want to run safe yards and we want to build safe boats. No, absolutely. It's more, a, uh, one might think that in foreign yards, those health and safety and environmental issues aren't necessarily paramount as they are for a U.S. yard and hence might lead to a cost differential. That's the only reason I'm asking the question. But um, no takers. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so I, I think this is a good segue on to the U.S. build requirement itself. Um, the, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there's a requirement that vessels be built in the United States, but that's actually not as simple as it sounds uh, because uh, there have been instances where a U.S. yard is um, obtaining foreign-made uh, parts, uh, in particular prefabricated steel parts, and then uh, completing their, 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 in, their incorporation into the vessel in the United States. And occasionally uh, that is, uh, that's resulted in a determination by the Coast Guard that the vessel is actually not U.S. built uh, and hence is not eligible for the coastwise trade. And as some people may know uh, in participating in the forum, uh, a vessel that's, uh, that has not been, uh, does not satisfy the U.S. build requirements, uh, basically requires an act of Congress uh, to become eligible to operate in the coastwise trade. Um, how, how have your yards dealt with those types of situations? Do you encounter them uh, often? Uh, how do you avoid those types of problems? Marshall's well, we yeah we use U.S. distributors uh, obviously, but um, we are we for these crew transfer vessels. Uh, there is a lot of um, you know material and equipment uh, coming from Europe, um, where the wind farm 
developed in the beginning and they developed, you know, vessels and in, in, in industries uh, to, to support those vessels. So, so we're finding that we are, we are sourcing a lot of equipment, but obviously it is, it is you know, under the Jones Act, it is, it is fine to bring in all sorts of equipment. It's just in, in the prefabricated, you know, parts that you run into difficulties. Exactly. Jim or Patrick? Yeah, I'll, I'll go next. Um, basically, we, first of all, we totally fulfill and go by the U.S. build requirements. But however, you can't have it both ways on the cost. Uh, in order to be competitive and to cost, there are components for very strategic reasons, commercial reasons, that we source on an international basis. And from very reputable, okay, shipbuilders across the world who have a supplier network of equipment and parts that we're able to rely on and to be confident, okay, in their ability to deliver and that they're of the highest quality. So it is, is something that uh, uh, we always strive to maximize U.S. content, but as, as Marcia mentioned, there are certain things just by the design, okay, that's being dictated to that dictate a foreign piece of equipment or part. Yep, uh, absolutely. We, we focus on buying American as well. Uh, uh, where we have to, we will source outside the U.S., although in our procurement work, we're always very careful to make sure that we remain Jones Act compliant in everything that we do, even if that requires going back to the customer and explaining the situation and, and saying why something might be delayed in the current uh, environment with procurement. It's a conversation that has to happen at, from time to time. And do you take advantage of uh, the opportunity that the Coast Guard gives to get U.S. bill determination letters? Do you typically do that as a routine or you, you rely more on uh, engineering and art, naval architectural uh, advice? Jim, you're probably closest to that. At Fraser, we do some of that when we have to, Tony, but it's an unusual step for us. Yeah, we do see it for larger yards. That's, I just wanted to see right. if that's across the board. Um, right. Uh, it, the, as, for people that may not know, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, Coast Guard uh, is available to review submissions to determine whether uh, prefabricated steel parts and other things are um, going to be a problem. And uh, many, um, <clears throat> many shipyards uh, avail themselves of that opportunity to go and talk to them and uh, get these determination letters so that they know in advance before they, they deliver the ship that there's no problems. So. Yeah, you basically put the question for me, Tony. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, moving on to uh, another topic related to the U.S. build requirement, and that is, um, and this has been discussed in, in an earlier panel at the forum today, um, and that is how important it is to the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard to have U.S. commercial shipyards. Um, uh, and and uh, uh, I think all three of you have projects with, um, with the government. So, Jim, maybe start with you. Yeah, I, I think from our standpoint, there really are two dimensions to this. One is that we believe that the U.S. government, okay, does value the commercial shipyards uh, that are in existence to as a key part of the national uh, security base. So I think that uh, that's a message that we hear continuously and that they need the capacity, both in terms of new builds and repairs. Uh, 
the other dimension is that what is kind of being talked about in the industry right now is applying some maybe some of the best commercial shipbuilding practices to government projects. And that is uh, uh, being discussed at Mary Levels. Our current MIRAD training ship for tote services is basically right now the poster child of that to where, where it's a quasi government build, but utilizing best commercial practices. Patrick or Marsha? I'll, I'll, I'll try this one next, Marsha. You, know, you just look at the headlines this week and you realize the world is a pretty dangerous place. And for national security reasons, it's important that we keep a US capability and skill set in building a strong uh, uh, naval fleet uh, uh, as required. And you know, I think many people would argue even today we're well behind uh, a lot of folks in the world and need to be quite careful and thoughtful about how we maintain uh, a key skill set. It's also a, an important cog in basic commerce. Uh, here in Duluth Harbor, uh, uh, the ability to repair ships as and when required is critical to the one of the top 20 ports in North America. So there's a clear need for the service, the skill set capability. We have some folks on the team here who are third, fourth generation shipbuilders, and we can't lose that skill set. That's an important capability within the U.S. workforce. That's right. Now, I completely agree with both uh, Jim and Patrick. Um, it, it takes years to develop the skills, you know, that our, our workers have um, to, to fabricate these, our vessels, obviously large and small. Um, in, in terms of, you know, we're a small yard, but still there's a lot of small, smaller vessels, uh, particularly the U.S. Coast Guard. So uh, we, we are mostly new build, but, you know, we have taken repair work for the motor lifeboats, the 45s and the 47s in our sector, mostly sector one. Uh, and that, that is, um, you know, we appreciate that revenue stream. And, and we've gotten, you know, pretty good at it. So, you know, so we're available, you know, when those vessels do need to be serviced. And, and Jim, you, you also, Philly Shipyard also does a fair amount of repair work for, for government ships. Yes, we have done three repairs in the last few years. Currently our, our docks are, uh, are full, but we're looking at some potential capital expansion to allow us to do repairs on a more continuous basis. Um, so kind of related to, to the capacity issue you just raised, um, as, as everybody knows, the offshore wind space is, is, um, is, is booming, uh, at least hopefully. Uh, a lot of leases are being granted and it should lead to um, the construction of the wind turbines, which will of course need CTVs, SOVs, uh, wind turbine installation vessels, et cetera. Um, uh, can, can U.S. shipyards satisfy the demand for those new vessels? Um, is, is, if somebody's crying to have uh, an exception for foreign-made ships for the offshore wind space, is that, is that a fair um, request? Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, Patrick? I think, yeah, I, well, no, Marcia, go ahead. Start. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, it's fine. Yeah, I think it depends on how fast the wind farms, um, the construction goes, because obviously there's leases all over the, you know, the Atlantic coast at this point. Uh, and, and it depends on, on, you know, how 
you know, how they develop. And there's obviously more of the vessels that are needed during construction than O&M. So there's going to be sort of upfront demand for all sorts of vessels, you know, during the construction. And so I think it's the, it depends on how fast it goes. If it really goes fast, then there's going to be tremendous demand. Uh, but, but I do think there's uh, a lot of shipyards that, that could get into this space. Yep, I, I agree completely with Marsha's comments. You know, we, we've seen this cycle before in the oil and gas industry in the 60s and 70s, as the oil and gas industry moved offshore, they required a whole new fleet of vessels to be built out. And there is capacity all over North America that can respond to that, uh, to that demand. Uh, but it doesn't come quickly. I completely agree with Marcia. It requires some time and pace to the conversations and to the build. But once those things are, are ready and, and once customers know what they want built and are prepared to enter into those contracts, the space is there to get it done. We're, we're ready to even expand space as needed to meet the uh, offshore wind requirements here. I have nothing much to add. I, I agree with my uh, counterparts that it's all about timing. Uh, as we respond to inquiries about wind-related vessels, it seems like every two weeks the times change. So, uh, and many of the people that we talk to, some of them are developers that don't understand things like dock availability and, and dock slots. So we're managing through that, but I'm not really aware to date, okay, that there have been any vessels that are needed that some U.S. shipyard hasn't been able to respond to in order to do it. So uh, I think it's a it's an industry that's in its infancy, and you have uh, operators, some that would love to bring foreign vessels in, all right, because they believe that might produce a better uh, economic model. So I think we got this nip and tug, and and there is an ultimate final clarity on some of the issues, okay, of whether they're gonna be allowed to be Jones Act or variances are being given to foreign. And that affects timing and certainty, okay, of uh, building slots. <clears throat> I think in general, the <clears throat> many of the vessels that are needed for the offshore wind space are, the, are, are many, the, a great number are probably smaller vessels and hence uh, the yards around the United States should be able to build them. It's the larger vessels where the larger yards, like fully shipyard, uh, would be an issue if they're not available. But they, they aren't, it's not clear yet what size vessels are going to be, you know, the larger size vessels, what are they going to build? I don't know. If, okay. Um, so the last kind of major topic I, uh, we, I thought we discussed is environmental, social, and governance issues. Um, and I think the focus is mostly on environmental. Um, and... Uh, uh, just mindful of the time, I'll, I'll start with uh, really what, what do the panelists see uh, for the future in terms of fuels and ship designs? Um, there's, uh, as everybody is aware, I'm sure there's a real push to, to go to different uh, fuels uh, uh, sources. And uh, that, of course, is uh, where you all have a complex problem to deal with and, and in, uh, in dealing with the designers and the construction of the vessels. Um, Jim, you want to start? Yeah, as we see it and, and talking to our various clients, a uh, few years ago, it was building vessels that were LNG ready, but not ready, not installed. Now the future, the people that are talking to us about are actually LNG installed. 
and with possibilities down the road that they can convert those to ammonia. So from our perspective, the owners that we're talking to are very keen, okay, to be greener and more fuel efficient and leave uh, less of a carbon imprint. And so I see that trend uh, continuing in a very big way. Marcia or Patrick? Yeah, well, our, the four contracts that we have for the CTVs, they, are, they will be hybrid ready. Um, so that means that we have an empty compartment <laughs> uh, which yeah. we like to use for other things, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the vessel, you know, where the batteries will go. Uh, but I do think it's been, uh, for the new types of fuels, it's been a slower process uh, for, the, you know, to come down to be used in the smaller vessels. I think there's a lot of, obviously on the larger vessels, you know, you know a, a lot of progress, um, but less so on the smaller the, the vessel. Yep, and agreeing with both of my colleagues here, adaptability going forward is, seems to be the watchword among our customers. And we engage on a regular basis with them about design that allows to adapt to new technologies as they basically come good, as something has proven to work. Uh, being able to retrofit uh, a new build to that particular engine or fuel source is really the watchword as we see it going forward. Okay. And um, do, how involved are the yards in, um, in these uh, developing emerging uh, fuels? Uh, uh, do you meet with the designers up front? Uh, how, how does that interaction work, keeping in mind you're responsible for the ship? We definitely meet with the designers right up front and talk about uh, what their goals are, what their objectives are uh, in the build. Uh, we're also doing quite a bit at the yard itself to become more green, if you will, and backing out our electrical usage from non-green sources. Uh, here in Superior, we're 50% supplied by wind energy from uh, uh, Minnesota and the Dakotas, mm -hmm. and that's terrific. But as we go forward, we're trying to get smarter in how we can generate some of that power ourselves right here on site and avoid uh, paying third parties for it uh, along the way. But it's in keeping with where our customers are going as well. It's just uh, a part of the same theme. I think you mentioned that you have a building that uh, uses uh, solar energy. We're looking at an upgrade to an existing building. Uh, we're looking at adding solar and thermal walls uh, that will allow the radiant heat uh, on the south facing walls to actually pump heat into the building. We're excited about it. It's a way to heat a facility that uh, today is heated through other means. Marsha or Jim? Yeah, well, we, we joined a, um, a group called the Green Marine, which is an environmental certification program. I think it's out of Canada. Uh, and it's just for the marine industry. And uh, as for a small shipyard, that is sort of our, our way of, of being able to tackle the, the problems or the issues we have environmentally. So, so we establish benchmarks and then there's an annual um, you know, environmental performance reviews and evaluations. So that, that is one way where we've been able to approach that and it, it covers you know many aspects of the environment. And Tony, I'll quickly say that we also are doing a lot of things in the environmental area. All of the equipment, construction equipment as well as the permanent equipment in the yard, we look for the most greenest solutions. Uh, an example is in our paint halls. All right, we just installed 
uh, new boilers that are low NOx, all right? Uh, all these things cost a premium, but we believe, okay, we'll pay off over time and, and, and we're doing the right thing. I see Nicholas and I think our time is up. <laughs> it's been a very interesting discussion and I have to say you, you all put a lot of uh, information and insight into it and, and thank you very much. And uh, Tony, thank you for uh, doing all the coordination uh, very appreciated. All right. Th thank, thanks thank uh, to all of our panelists. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yep.